0: I want to begin just in a way of kind of reviewing where we were uh, last week. We talked about the judgment of God, and I found it difficult to study. I found it difficult to preach on, and I think just from watching your faces, I think it was a little difficult for you to listen to as well. And here's the reason for that. Let me offer a reason for that difficulty in hearing about the judgment and, and having all those question marks. It looked as if I looked across the congregation, everybody had those little glowing question marks with things over their heads that they were wondering about. And I tell you this all the time the world is, is full of idolaters, and I don't think anybody's a greater idolater than the United States. We've taken the idea of God. And we've refashioned Him. We, we give Him the attributes that we like or that we appreciate. And we kind of do away with those attributes of God that make us nervous, that we don't like. And so we're really a very idolatrous nation. But you need to understand that you and I do that to a certain level as well. And that's because of our fallen nature. There's particular attributes of God that we enjoy, that we celebrate, that we talk about. And there's the other attributes of God that make us uncomfortable, we're unsure about, and we and we don't talk about very much. And I'm convinced such as is the issue of the judgment of God, it's really left our thoughts and our conversations. So that makes things very difficult. But nonetheless, this morning, I want us to start at the end of these passages because I really want you to understand it. I don't want you to be so tired by the end of these passages that you're really not connecting with what is the drum roll moment of what Paul is talking about. And it really comes down in verses 28 and 29. And what Paul is helping us to understand, and technology is not going to work, that's okay, you have your Bibles. I always trust that you have the Word of God open in your lap. So the Bible spends so much time speaking to professing believers in order that they might know whether or not they are a genuine believer. So much ink is spilt in this book, you realize... Primarily, this book was written to you. And so much ink is spilled in here trying to help you understand, okay, you profess Christ, now here's what that looks like in your life. And because so much ink is here, so much work is done from this pulpit. Even Cody, was it last week or week before in Hebrews 4, he was doing the same thing. And we do this all the time. So that's what Paul is driving at here when he finishes out chapter 2 in verses 28 and 29. And if you'll notice, and if you're the kind of person that takes a pen, or if you have that little guide that, that we purchase in the book of Romans, I want you to notice in 28 and 29, there's three nots, 3 O T S, And so Paul is going to use three negatives, three nots, and then he's going to say but and give us the positive so we can look at 28 and 29 and go, okay, that's genuine belief right there. And frankly, I don't, I don't know of too many more places in Scripture that is so helpful it clearly defines what it means to be a genuine believer and follower of christ notice with me the first knot and really the first argument i told you there's three the first argument or the first point, rather, really doesn't end until halfway through 29. So the majority of it he spends on this first point. And here it is. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that is, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Now don't get tripped up by Jew. He was speaking specifically to the Jews, but you need to understand that applies to Us as genuine believers. We can use that as an illustration or a metaphor to understand he is a genuine believer who is not one outwardly, but is one inwardly. And that's why he goes on in the second half of 29, or rather the second half of that first phrase, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. So he's drawing a comparison. It's not this, but it's that. And the first illustration or the first point that he makes is it's not outward. Genuine conversion is not outward. You and I can do the outward things. I did the outward things this morning. I got suit pants on, got a pretty nice shirt on, meant to wear a tie, but I was like, eh, it's kind of hot, don't want to do that. Brush my teeth, comb my hair. You're still awake. I did all the outward things. You did some outward things. You got, you got in the car and, and you cleaned up a bit and you drove down and you came through the doors and you seated in the sanctuary. We're, we can do outward things. And we can do outward things all day long. But true conversion has to take place at the level of the heart. It has to take place inwardly. And brothers and sisters, you know without a shadow of a doubt, you cannot affect change there. You can do outward stuff all day long. But you can't do inward stuff at all. And the Bible gives you a very clear reason why we can't do inward stuff. I could turn to a number of places to describe that for you. Jeremiah is probably one of the best. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else. It is desperately sick. And then you'll say in, in chapter 13... You'll ask the question, can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin or can the leopard change his spots? And we could easily infer, can you do anything about your wicked and fallen heart? And the answer to that is, is absolutely not. You understand that, right? I don't know why I bring this up, I guess because it's on my heart this morning. But I don't, I probably have made y'all uncomfortable with lifting your hands in worship because I don't do that. Now, I used to do that. In fact, I used to attend a church where the worship leader told us to do that. And in fact, it's pretty funny. Paige and I were put in this situation just a couple of weeks ago. We were in a room with, I don't know, 500 people. And the worship leader does that, lift your hands. And there were two people in that room where their hands were down by their side. And that was me and my wife. And we're not trying to be disrespectful. We're not trying to be, we try to sleep back and kind of hide when we do that. But we understand the significance is the inward lifting of the soul toward God. And that doesn't help me to lift my soul. In fact, I feel like a hypocrite when I do that. Right? But I do. I said that. But I do not want that to affect you at all. That might help you lift your soul toward God. But we grew up as you did this. And I would do this, and my heart would be out in left field. I would be in sin, but I was doing this outward sign, and everybody would go, oh, worship was this awesome day. We just all had our hands lifted up, and I'm like, worship was not okay in my heart. And so I don't want to do this unless this is going on, because I understand I can do the outward. And again, please don't think I'm criticizing that. If you want to do that, please do that. Don't let me hinder you doing that. But I'm just trying to explain to you why you probably don't usually see me doing that. Because I want God to do that in the level of my heart. Because that's what really matters. And so genuine conversion, first point, you can't do it. It's inward. The second point is, and I want you to notice, it's in verse 29, the second part. He actually starts with the positive, and then he goes to the negative. It's by the Spirit. It's not by the letter. It's it's not by the letter. It's not written down. It's not a list of requirements. It's not a moral code. It's not something you physically or tangibly do, right? Which is very interesting because in many Southern Baptist churches, they'll spend in their 20 or 30 minute sermon, they'll spend like 95% of talking about how it's faith alone. And when it comes to the point of conversion, they give you something to do. Then I'm like, you just undid 25 minutes, buddy. Because you took salvation and you twisted it and you you made it. Now do this and you'll be saved. And I'm like, you just quoted the law. Okay? It's not by the letter. It's by the Spirit of God. And that's why I'm so reluctant to say, okay, one, two, three, here's salvation for you. Step one. Even the phrase, the plan of salvation makes me super uncomfortable because your plan's written down, and it's by the Spirit of God. Now let me ask you this question. You can manipulate things written down, but can you manipulate the Spirit? Some are obviously under the impression that they can manipulate the Spirit of God. I've, I'm not under that impression. You know, I think about Jesus' words, for instance, in John 3 eight, where the Lord says... You know, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And some of these gospel presentations and invitations are as if the Holy Spirit's sitting, you know, back there in the corner in a chair somewhere, twiddling his thumbs, just waiting on you to move so he can move. It's just like we have this power to manipulate the Spirit, even with music. You know, Robin, and I, worship just kills me, man. They dim the lights, and while the pastor's talking, you know, the music starts playing softly. And I'm just, you know, if I had hair, I'd just pull it out. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you, are you manipulating the Spirit of God? Does he like soft music and soft voices and a little smoke coming off the stage and does he like that? Is that what you're doing there because it's it looks really weird to me. Looks like I'm at a concert, not in worship. You see, it's by the spirit. And we don't have I don't even want to say that. Let me that would be so disrespectful. We don't have control of the spirit of God. The Spirit of God moves according to the will of God, not ours. You can't put revival on a calendar and tell the Spirit, okay, we got revival next week, so we're really going to need you to show up. It doesn't work that way. I really hope revival breaks out here one day. But let me tell you how it will break out here one day. If it does, it will be through repentance. You get so stinking broke over your sin that I won't be able to dry your eyes. And then it'll spill over into me and I'll get so stinking broken over my sin, I can't help you anymore. And then it'll spread down the pews and none of us can even talk because we're just so broken about how sinful we are and we'll begin to cry out to God for His mercy and His grace. And I'll stand up here and go, okay, we had revival. It's by the Spirit, not by the letter. And then notice the last thing, and then I'll actually get into (laughs) the sermon. I guess I need to make it shorter now. But notice the very last phrase in verse 29. Not from men. What is not from men? His praise is not from men. That converted man. Genuine converted man. His praise doesn't come from men, but, third one, from God. Now let me tell you what I do with these passages. Because we love to pat people on the back and say, congratulations, you got saved. Why would I say that? Well, because I told them what to do and they did it. And so they get confirmation from me, they get affirmation from me. That's not where true conversion affirmation and confirmation comes from. It comes from the Father. I don't even like to say that to people. I really don't. Because how bad would it be? Joyce said I was saved and I get up here and stand before the Lord and he says I don't even know who you are. So your praise doesn't come from me. True conversion, your praise comes from God. And it's the work of God in your heart. You see how incredibly important these passages are? And so I ask you, can you do the outward things? And of course, I can do all the outward things that can be done. But can you do any of those inward things? Can you, can you manipulate the Spirit of God? Can you achieve the praise of God? Can you change or affect your heart? And Of course, I think everybody in this room goes, absolutely not. And I'll go, amen, you understand. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. He's the one that begins the work. He's the one that gives you repentance. He's the one that gives you faith. He's the one that causes you to call out to Him. He's the one that saves you. He's the one that sanctifies you. He's the one that glorifies you. So that when we bow before the throne, we'll have not one boast, not one boast, but boast in Him. Because He's done it all from beginning to end. Now, that's the punchline. That's salvation. But you need to understand from the Jewish perspective, and then we can learn from their mistakes, what relationship does all of that have to do with the law because it has a tremendous relationship? Okay? Okay? So that's, let me flesh all that out for you that I just said in relationship to the law. Now, let me begin with this. What advantage? Look at Romans 3.1. Did the Jew have an advantage? Oh my goodness. It's ridiculous. How great of an advantage they had as the chosen people of God. Notice what Paul says with the question, what advantage has the Jew or what benefit has circumcision? We'll get to that. But notice verse 2. He answers this question. Great in every single solitary way. Great in every respect. First of all, if we're going to talk about the benefits, let me go with the first one. Notice what he says. They were entrusted with the oracles of God which is another word for Paul's way of communicating the law the Scriptures, the Word, they were entrusted with the Word of God. Was that a benefit? Well, if you ever given that much thought, you'd be like, what are you talking about? That was the greatest benefit, right? And to bring it into your terms, was it a benefit that you were given a copy of God's Word that you have a Bible? Is that any benefit to you? You know, I hate the fact that you can buy a Bible at Walmart. I just don't think that's right. You know? I just think there's special place we ought to be able to get this thing, and it's only for God's people. And you know, but I understand. But when we we diminish what we have, we have God's word to us written down, even His grammar and His punctuation, everything. And you have that line in your lap right now. And so let me ask you: Is that, is that any kind of benefit? It's like, what are you talking about? Man, this is my greatest physical possession. And you go, absolutely understand it. But if you're still kind of messed up, let me go on. Is it a benefit for you to know the gospel? How about that one? You do realize out of the 8B and whatever it is now, people on the planet, like the majority of them have never heard the gospel. You do understand that. And there are so many people in our own country who will live and die and never hear the truth of the gospel. They'll hear a false gospel. Right? So is it any kind of benefit for you to know the truth about how to have everlasting life? Is it any kind of benefit for you to know, and I I don't really want to use the word, but I will, hopefully you'll understand what I mean, the secret of having eternal life? Is that a benefit for you? You're like, what are you... Man, yes, that's my greatest benefit. Then you can understand Paul's saying in verse 2. First of all, they were entrusted with the Word of God. So can you imagine having access to this truth that imparts life? And here's the deal, knowing it, teaching it, preaching it, but not being saved by it? That's what they had. They had it. They heard it. They were taught it. Some preached it, but they weren't saved by it. And do you realize there's been many a man in the church who heard the gospel knew the gospel, stood from a pulpit or a podium in a Sunday school room, taught the gospel, and will not be saved by the gospel? So we've got to understand this relationship between God's law and this gospel this morning. But anyway, let me get back to this. So was this a benefit? Well, I like to refer to it as this. The law of God, the Word of God was the national treasure. Out of all the treasures in Israel, the national treasure was the Word of God. And look what it contained. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Look at the very last phrase. Having in the law, you see that? Look what they had. The embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Actually, there's two articles there. I don't know why the English translation leaves out one. But it's in the law, this is what you have. The very embodiment of the knowledge of God. What? In the law, I have the wisdom and the knowledge of the one who created the heavens and the earth? Yes. And not just that, you have the knowledge and you have the truth. In the law, they had the very embodiment of the truth of God. There is no other outside sources for truth. You know that. And so because God had entrusted him with his oracles or his teachings or his law, they had in their possession the very truth of the living God. It was unbelievable what they had written down for them. But God didn't just want them to have it. It wasn't just about buying this at Walmart and putting it on your, your nightstand. You know there's more to this, right? And so not only did God want them to have it, but He also wanted to teach them this. So look, look with me at verse 18, and look at the very last phrase of verse 18. God had assigned certain men to teach it. And so Paul refers to this in the last, verse of, last part of verse 18, being instructed. They didn't just have the law. They were taught the law. And instructed is in the present tense. So this was the habit. This is an everyday thing. We're going to have the instruction of the law of God or the Word of God. We're going to be taught this. It's, it's, it's not just enough to have this. No, God saw fit in His mercy and His wisdom and His grace that I've provided men who are going to teach this to you. First men, Moses. That's a pretty good teacher. And Aaron. Aaron. And their responsibility, God-given responsibility, I want you to, to take this law that I wrote down for you, Moses, and I gave to you on Mount Sinai, and I want you to go teach it to the people. And so this is a routine. This is how we lived our life. This constant teaching, right? And then you've got a long line of prophets who taught the Word of God. Not just enough to have it, but I'm going to teach it to you. And then, and then when Christ comes, right? What do they say about Him? I mean, I know they were, they were blown away by the miracles, but do you, do you remember what else they were blown away by? His teaching. The Bible says that they were astounded at His teaching. Our Lord came teaching the law of God to the people of God. And the Bible says the people were absolutely astonished So God gave them the law, God taught them the law, and because they had these two things, right? Or because they had those two things, there was unique benefits that came with it. There were high privileges. Notice with me in verse 18, the, the middle phrase here, and I'm walking backwards through this. They were instructed out of the law, but notice the middle phrase. They were able to approve the things that are essential. Now that word approve, I don't think it's strong enough. I don't guess we have an English word that's quite strong enough. It's the Greek word dokimazo, which means to critically examine something, understand it, and apply it. I mean, they didn't just have it, and they weren't just taught it. They could apply it. And not just that, it says the things that are essential. I think a better translation for that is the superior. Things that are superior. I could hear the law of God. I could understand the law of God, and I could apply the law of God in critical circumstances and situations. I knew how to think about it critically. I mean, what a blessing is that? And when I was thinking about that, and I was pondering on that particular phrase. Luke 10 came to mind, and you'll remember this. We've already walked through the Gospel of Luke. But remember, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus one day. And he asked Jesus this question, and there is no finer question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If you're going to ask the Lord a question, and I said this one with Luke 10, I mean, there's no better one. And so the Lord does what he, he almost always does. I'm going to answer your question with a question. Because the Lord knows the answer, so He said, I want to see if you know the answer. So this is how the Lord responds. He said to him, okay, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? You talk about a hard question, I bring up eternal life. And the Lord goes, okay, man, you have the law. You've been taught the law. In fact, you yourself are a teacher of the law. So let me just just take that law, that whole thing, and answer your own question. At that moment, I would have probably, my hands begin to shake and my chin begin to quiver. And I go, I don't know. But the guy answered the question. And this is his response. Verse 27, he said, All right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and and love your neighbor as yourself. And before you jump right in and criticize that theologically, you you do need to understand that Jesus' response to his answer was you nailed it. He really did. If you think about it very long, You, you nailed it, son. You took the whole law and you nailed it. Great answer. How was he able to do that? Oh, he had been blessed by God. He was able to approve the things that are essential on the spot. It's such a blessing to have these things. But there's one better. Look back in verse 18, and I don't know of a better one than this. Notice the first phrase, and to know His what? His will. Now, what's better than that? I know God's will. Is there a better better thing than that? Now, I know we, we've messed that up and it, it seems a little unfamiliar to you with just know his will because in your minds, because of how you've been taught and because you've bl- grown up here in this western part of the world, there's, there's words missing there, right? Know his will. And I need three more words or I don't really understand it. Know his will for my life. We always add that and I don't know why we add that. It's not about that. I'm sorry. It's, it's not about you. Deep breath. You'll be okay. It's not about you. It's about Him. And it's about His will. And once you understand His will, you change your life. Because we're doing what He's doing. He's not doing what we're doing. But they had that in the embodiment of the law. They understood the will of God. And that needs to be something that we're concerned with every day. All of our goals need to be in line with the will of the Lord, right? So all of these fine blessings, all of these wonderful benefits, and it enabled them potentially to do something great. Look in verse 19. You're confident then that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a, a teacher of the immature. This is not sarcasm. This is just truth. Why were they able to be a light to those who are in darkness? Because God had given them the law. God had taught them the law. They understood the law to a degree. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And it really did enable them to be a teacher and instructor of the nations. Now they weren't called to do that. But you do understand in the New Testament, we are actually called to do that. In fact, part of this phrase was repeated by the Lord Himself when He called Paul. Acts 26, Paul, uh, the Lord says to Paul, I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Same phrase. It was God's call on Paul's life. So did Paul have some unique knowledge that the nations needed to know? Well, no, not in and of himself. You see, Paul was given the gospel by the Lord. Paul was taught the gospel by the Lord. And so God called Paul to go to the nations and teach the gospel of God to the nations. Now what's our clear mandate as a church in Matthew 28? Go and make what? Disciples. How do you do that? Well, don't worry, I defined it for you, says the Lord. Baptizing them and what? Teaching them to observe all things. What am I going to teach them, Lord? Am I going to teach them from my experience? Or, you know, I'm 50 years old, so I got something to share from my heart. No, son, that's that's not it at all. I want you to teach them what I taught you. That's how you make disciples. And see, they were enabled to do that because they were given the law and they were taught the law. You and I are commanded to do that because we're given the gospel, we're taught the gospel. Now we go proclaim the gospel, right? But so there's, there's, there's striking similarities, there's striking blessings. But now we come to this part where I need to turn the corner and, and tell you it was just a little bit different. For them in respect to the law than it is for us. So let me talk about the difference before I talk about what it means to us now. Because God's command to the Jews in regard to the law was this. Do this and live. Do this and live. That's not the command that we receive. But it is the command that they receive. But don't think there was no grace in the law. There was grace everywhere in the law. In fact, just by the fact that they had the law was grace. But there was atonement for them in the law. They could repent. And they could offer an animal sacrifice and spill the blood. And that animal's death would pay for their sin. There was grace everywhere in the law. And God actually required them to do something they could not do. You're like, why would the Lord ever do that? Because one of the main purposes in God giving them the law was to teach them that they were in desperate need of a Savior. Because they could do nothing about their sin. Now when we get to Romans 3.20, Paul's going to actually say this, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, in the doing of the law, there is going to be this little hiccup in their heart to go, wait a minute, I feel a little bit like a hypocrite here, Lord. Because your, your word says, thou shalt not lie. You know, how many animals am I going to have to kill, Lord, before I ever get cleaned of this thing? And why do I keep doing this thing? And why do, why do I, I just always, am I tempted to do this thing? Why am I drawn to this thing? And why do sometimes I do it before I even realize it and I want to reel it back in? And in your law, you said, you know, don't commit adultery, right? And, and Lord, I haven't done that. But in my heart, there's something wrong. Am I supposed to kill animals every time I have a lustful thought? I mean, we're not going to have any animals left, Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm doing this, but you're going to have to do something else. Now I truly believe by the time we get to the New Testament, we see, no doubt, men and women who understood the whole as a gaping hole in the law, but they continued to do this by faith, trusting that God would do something else, right? So when God gave them the law and He told them to do this and live, they would not be able to do this, but hopefully they would be able to understand that if we don't trust God, we're all going to die. If He doesn't save us, we cannot save ourselves. Well, that wasn't the conclusion that they came to. And when we get to Romans 10, you'll see that. They trusted in their own abilities to keep that very law. So since they trusted in the ability to do, Paul's going to trick them in this argument. And this is where I need your brain because I would hate to be sued by the Apostle Paul because you're going to lose in that trial every single time. He's going to eat you for lunch. And he's about to eat them up. In fact, he was going to use a phrase that they were very familiar with. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul throws this down here and they all would have said, Amen. Amen. 2.13, it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now you immediately want to change that theologically, but don't change it. Let it sit. That's what they believed and said, okay, let's just go back and grab an Old Testament phrase and drop that. You agree with that. Logically, they would have been like, well, absolutely. You got to do more than just have it. Obviously, you have to obey it. And we would agree with that logic, too. And that's why I want you to to leave it here. Let me give you an illustration of this. Sadly enough, there is no more teaching at the Carroll Academy of Higher Learning. They've all graduated and moved on. But once upon a time, there were three young children in that academy. And they all resided upstairs or went upstairs where I built that little schoolroom right above the garage. There were desks and little school desks and marker boards and you know, letters and numbers on the wall and a globe. You gotta have the globe. And there was the microscope sitting in the corner and there was a little bathroom up there. And Paige went up there and then she taught three kids, three different subjects on three different levels every single day except the weekends. It was, again, our academy for higher learning, right? They had laws, they had rules. In fact, Paige had them posted on the wall. Some of the rules Paige, you know, needed to come up with herself because they really needed to be useful. And one of those is very practical. Raise your hand if you have a question because three kids on three subjects, it's not going to work if you just start talking and start whining because you don't understand. So you've got to raise your hand, right? And the second was, after you raise your hand, you've got to be patient and wait till mom gets there because you all three can't be hollering about three different subjects at the same time because it's going to be chaos and you'll get nothing done. Now the kids added two more. Uh, one of them was, be kind to otters. Now, where that came from was one of the kids misspelled others, and they spelled it otters, so one of their laws that they would recite in homeschool was to be kind to otters. The last one the girls came up with, for my son, it was no, and I'm sorry, this is the only thing your kids are going to remember today, but here you go, no arm tooting. Because my little boy liked to do that. You know, it's just really hard if you're a teacher to just keep going when somebody does that. And so my son would do that. And so, you know, that was written up on the wall. And so they could see that he couldn't do that anymore. So they had laws. Now, let me ask you something. Was it necessary for them to have those? Yeah, if you want to do school. But what's more necessary? you got to obey those. I mean, if you're not doing them, what good are they? And so Paul sets up this question, and if you remember the math and said, greater than, less than, I'll put this in here for Rob. we got having the law and obeying the law. And you got to put that little alligator or Pac-Man pointed in a different way. Which one is greater? Doing! I mean, yeah, having, certainly, but this is a test. And so which one is greater? Doing. And so Paul drops this here, right? It's not just, in verse 13, it's not just the hearers of the law who are just before God, but it's the doers of the law, right? And they would go, absolutely. I know the my symbol. I'll do it. And Paul's like, good. Now that I have you, let me just walk through some things for you. And notice with me verses 25 through 27. Right? Verse 25, For indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law. Now you understand that circumcision was the outward sign of being a part of the Jewish people who had the law, right? So Paul says, so you've got the outward sign, and that's of value if you practice the whole law, right? But if you break the law, doesn't that outward sign become absolutely meaningless? And that's why it says your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Real quick illustration. I don't want to use up so much time, but this is really important for you to understand. So I have a few Presbyterian friends, right? And they have pretty sound biblical logic. The Old Testament sign of the people of God was circumcision. What's the New Testament sign? According to them, baptism. And that's the very reason they baptize children, because that's the new covenant sign, if you will, of being a part of the family of God. It's a pretty good argument. And I've asked a few of them that are my friends before, "Is, is that salvific? Some of them would say yes, but I think the better ones would say no. There still has to be something inward. So you're telling me the baptism would be meaningless for the one who doesn't, repent and follow Christ? And some of them would say, well, absolutely. And you do understand we would agree with that as well. Have you ever known anybody to be baptized, even at this church, and then never follow Christ? I think we all have. And so we look at that and we go, okay, was that outward sign meaningful? To which your pastor would respond, no. You just got wet is what you got. Because that's an outward sign of something that's happened on the inside. And if the inside's happened, you better believe the outward is significant. So Paul's going to use this thought in regard to circumcision. Back again in verse 20, 25. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, if you transgress the law, your circumcision has become uncertain. It's meaningless. Verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man, or the, the Gentile... Keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as good? And he who is physically uncircumcised, again, not the not not doesn't have the outward sign. But if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are actually a, a breaker or a transgressor of the law? So Paul cuts right to it. I mean, which is more important: that you have the sign or you keep the law? Go back to math. Which one's better? That you have the physical sign or do you keep the law? Well, again, i got to go with keeping the law. Again, Paul's got them. But you and I will notice something here that Paul has not abandoned our gospel because look at verse 25. You've got the word if you practice the law. Look at verse 26. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law. Look at verse 27. If he keeps the law. He keeps saying if. Why does he keep saying if? Because Paul knows he can't. But he's still setting them up with the argument. In fact, that last word, that last in verse 27, if he keeps the law, is actually translated. It's not the same as the other word keep. It's teleo, which means to actually finish it, to complete it. Now that Paul's got them set up, all right, you agree? Doing's better. Yes. Doing's better than having? Absolutely. What about circumcision? Yes, yes, doing is better than circumcision. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, great. Doing the law is the thing, right? Okay, let me ask you a question. Look at verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who ate idols, and I, I'll explain this if you've got a question about after service. It's kind of confusing. You who ate idols, do you, do you actually rob temples? Verse 23 is the summary. You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Oh, you said doing. I'm so glad you said doing is what's important here. Now, how are you doing? I mean, if they were sensible and thoughtful at all, they would have been like, man. I just lost this case. I'm guilty. I'm going to prison. Doing is not going so well with me. Right? I can ask you. You want to go to heaven? Don't commit adultery. How you doing? Well, I kind of feel like a hypocrite. Because I haven't crossed that line. But I can't say that I haven't entertained the thought from time to time. Okay, so we're not doing so well, are we? Right? Right? And we could go through any law in regard to that, right? So Paul's got them set up. But you know what? Here's the worst thing of all. Look at verse 24. Look at verse 24. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God chose us and God blessed us in order that we might glorify His name among the nations. And rather than glorifying it, we've ruined it. Now Christian, you and I got to be so careful here. And I was trying to think of an illustration for you. Let's just say I actually walk up to one of these girls at work. And I say this, if you don't stop living in sexual immorality, you will go to hell. Now you got to understand from what point I just said that. Because if I say that from up here above them, coming down to them, I'm a hypocrite and I've dishonored the name of God. But if I say to them, if you don't stop being sexually immoral, you're going to spend eternity in hell just like me. Because you're sexually immoral and I'm sexually immoral, but I am trusting in the sexual purity of Christ as my justifier. And I beg of you to turn from your sin as I have and put my faith in the moral purity of my Savior so I can be accepted by God. I'm not preaching from this angle. I'm preaching from this angle. And God's name is honored and glorified because they understand God judges that sin, but God also redeems from that sin. And the only one left to talk about is God, not me, because I'm in the same boat you are. But I love you enough to tell you. And I go on to tell him, and if I ever turn away from the Lord and walk in sexual immorality, you need to know I'll go to hell as well. Right? The worst thing about all this is they dishonored God. And if you and I hold to some moral code and we preach down to people, we're going to dishonor the name of God as well because they'll say, you're a hypocrite. And you are. Unless, of course, you preach the gospel like this, eye to eye. You're not a hypocrite at that point. You're saved by grace and you're begging them to turn to the grace of God. So here's the great mistake, and I'm almost finished. Look at verse 17. And this is the beginning. I, I kind of walked backwards to this, I know, but I thought it was the best way to understand it. If you bear the name Jew and rely, if you're a word circler, there you go, rely upon the law. That word rely is used twice in the whole of your Bible, New Testament. It's also used in Luke 10 where it's translated the word rest, and that's a better translation. If you bear the name Jew and rest in the law. That's the picture. Now, Cody talked about this a couple of weeks ago, in, in, or a week ago, whatever, in Hebrews 4. You know, the law was never meant to be a rest. God didn't design it to be a rest. He didn't give it, teach it, say, do this, and you go, whoo, done it, I can sit down. No, in the doing of it, you were supposed to realize there's no place for me to sit. There's no place for me to kick off my shoes and realize that I'm done with my work. I cannot achieve your favor, God. There has to be a different place to rest. And we all know who we rest in. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know where we rest. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our rest. Paul, Paul begins his argument those words, you who rest in the law, you who say that you're justified by doing something, I need to talk to you. You guys do realize where it is we rest. And it's not in something we do. It's in something that God has done. And we worship Him and praise Him for Calvary. Now let me tie these two thoughts back together for you, and we're done. Look back at 26, right? Man, such a difficult phrase. In regard to the judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds? I wrestled with that for some time. I mean, here's the question at heart. How can we avoid resting in the law, trusting in the law, and yet at the same time be judged by God according to our deeds? How does that work? I hope you see the problem there. Well, let me go back. And I think you can define it for me and answer the question yourself. What's true conversion? Let's see. It's inward. It's by the Spirit. And the praise is received from God. So what do you think that inward work is that God does? What do you think that Spirit does within you that God has blessed you with? What do you think God receives? Huh? Those who love His law. You see, when God gives you a new heart, you have a whole different perspective about His law. What you used to hate, you now love. The sin you used to enjoy, it now makes you sick to your stomach because you want to walk according to the law and be holy. You totally understand, I can never justify myself by doing this because you see all the holes in your life. But you look to the one who has no hold, and you understand that Christ has fulfilled the law on my behalf, but you don't set it aside, and there's so many who do that. They just, okay, the law is bad. It's, it's done with. We've removed the law. And I'm like, what are you even talking about? You do understand there's still a judgment, right? But God has done such a work in your heart that when he, we stand before Him... He sees that law that's been at work in our own hearts and lives. He sees new love and new affections and new passions for who He is and what He has said. So let me leave you with this thought. Is those the sort of things going on in your heart? Does does your sin make you sick? Boy, that's a scary place to be when your sin doesn't make you sick. When you shade truth and kind of go off into a lie, but you don't don't want to call it a lie, do you ever come around to the understanding, I just told a lie. I just, what in the world? Be blessed if that's where you go and that's where you recognize because of the laws that work in your heart in a good way. What about sexual immorality? Come on, everybody in the room, at some point. Are you paying attention? Does it make you sick? Do you praise God for the righteous purity of Christ and the fact that you'll be judged by Him or justified by Him and you in weeping repentance beg God to cleanse you and forgive you? The law's at work. And it's a beautiful thing. Let's pray.